and this is God's word. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him up out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. You read that far in God's word. We've reached the end of the book of Jeremiah. I have a quiz for you. Which book of the Bible has the same words at the end of it as Jeremiah has at the end of it? The answer is 2 Kings. You can check it out if you're not going to be distracted right now, otherwise do it this afternoon. And why is that? Why are the last verses of 2 Kings the same as the last verses of Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah was picking up that history statement, those facts from 2 Kings, and repeating them here in order to show that a king named Jehoiachin gives hope for the other exiles. That God is showing his grace to King Jehoiachin at the end, gives hope to the exiles, and that was part of Jeremiah's point and message in his whole book. It's an excellent way to end the book. The book of Jeremiah ends on a positive note. Since the king remains in exile, we can't really say it's a happy ending, right? He's not home yet. But we must say it's a hopeful ending because it shows the promise of a sequel. It's like one of those movies when it ends, you know, oh, they're going to do another movie following this one. It just little clues in our passage, as I'll unfold in a moment, show us that there's hope of God's future activity for his people to fulfill that new covenant. And since God took care of this king, even in exile under the thumb of Babylon, God will take care of his exiles. We draw the lesson God will take care of us. So that's my main point across your handout outline. Since grace was shown to their exiled king, then God had not abandoned his exiled people. Later, in Jesus, the new and better Jehoiachin, there's more grace to come. First, we'll see how the exiled king was brought out of prison, verse 31. The exiled king received kindness while in exile, verses 32 and 33. And our third point, the exiled king had his daily needs met until the day of his death, verse 34. So our first point, the exiled king brought out of prison, verse 31. Before you get there, remember last time, verses 28 to 30, how we had a list of the exiles. Their years in which they were taken into exile, various deportations, the number of people taken, and then the grand total. Remember that, verses 28 to 30. Well, when you go from verses 28 to 30 now to verse 31, I need you to know something, that you jump forward, you really in time suddenly skip ahead by decades. So that's why it's helpful to maybe have a separate message on this today. It's decades later, okay? Jehoiachin had previously been taken into exile and a deportation, and now it's 37 years that he's been in exile, and we pick up the story now in verse 31. Jehoiachin, number one, he's still alive. That's significant in itself, right? Verse 31 was the time that King Nebuchadnezzar had died, so the king of Babylon is dead, but our guy, King Jehoiachin, is still alive. So now, what rattles our cage is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is dead. Uh Uh-oh, now what's going to happen to our king, who's in exile? The king of Judah is in exile under this giant, ancient 
superpower, the empire of Babylon, and they're getting a new king. And the new king is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And when there's a new king in the ancient world, when there's a new king in Babylon, people start to wonder, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen now? And the exiles would be wondering, what's going to happen now to our king Jehoiachin? And that's what we're told in these verses, the answer to that question. He, He was still considered a king, not just by the exiles, but by Babylon. Verse 31, for example, does not say the former king of Judah, who's now nothing more than a prisoner of war like everyone else, being beaten daily. It doesn't say any of that. Instead, what we have in verse 31 is a reference to Jehoiachin saying he's king of Judah. You know, Judah that had been destroyed. Judah from which they had been exiled. He's still being referred to as king 37 years later. Let that sink in. That's our first clue. But there's more. There's much more. When verse 31 continues and says what year it was, of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, we're getting two messages. One message is he's still the king of Judah, but the other message is he's something less than a full king. Right? He's not on his throne in Jerusalem. He's still not a free man. 37 years, he's not been at liberty to return home to Judah. Excuse me, I'll be right back. I'm going home. No, never, never could happen. So he's king, and yet not fully king. Two messages, see? Next, verse 31 tells the exiles what they really want to know. The new king of Babylon is going to treat him how? And what we get this, this statement. Graciously freed Jehoiachin and brought him out of prison. And the Hebrew here is significant to us. The new Babylonian king lifted up the head of the king of Je- the king Jehoiachin. That phrase, lifted up the head of, that you might have a footnote for, translated just fine, graciously freed. But the reason that that phrase, the Hebrew phrase transliterated into English, lifted up the head of, is helpful and significant for us is because it's intended to remind us of another incident just like this one. Another incident where our hero, our guy, the one that we're rooting for, is a prisoner in a foreign nation's prison. The other incident was not in the foreign land Babylon. It was over in the foreign land of Egypt. It's back in the book of Genesis. Joseph was in prison in the foreign land of Egypt. Remember how the chief cupbearer and the chief baker happened to be in the Egyptian prison with Joseph? Each had a dream. Joseph interpreted their dreams. Each dream came true. Each ended with the leader of Egypt lifting up the head of those two men, but with two very different meanings to the phrase, lifted up the head of. The leader of Egypt lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and restored him to his position serving in the palace. Pretty nice, lifted up the head of. But in contrast, the leader of Egypt lifted up the head of the chief baker, and it means that he hung him and he was killed. Lifted up the head, all right. Both are ways to use this phrase. And the point is that the leader of Egypt had four options with what to do with Joseph. He could kill him, he could leave him in prison, he could bring him into the palace, or he could send him back to his homeland. Verdict, which one did he do? He brought Joseph to the palace, eventually. And so now we come back to Jeremiah, having been reminded of this phrase, lift up the head of, of one of God's people, in a foreign land, in their prison, and how God is controlling all of that. So back to Jeremiah, where we're supposed to be reminded that whole rich story in Genesis around this phrase, lifted up the head of, 
And our guy, King Jehoiachin, is in prison in a foreign land of Babylon. And the new king of Babylon has just taken the throne. And now he has four options. He could kill Jehoiachin. He could leave Jehoiachin in prison. He could bring Jehoiachin to the palace. Or he could release him back to his homeland. Verdict? We get it here in our verse. He graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. It doesn't mean he sent him home. It means he's freed from prison. And furthermore, he gets to be in the palace. He lifted up his head. It was risky for the new king of Babylon to do this because a king from another country, especially when there's other exiles from his country in your country, is a sparking point for a revolt. He could gather people to have a new revolt. What's to prevent the Jewish exiles from rallying around King Jehoiachin and start a revolt? See the risk? When the king was freed from prison to the palace, all the more risk that he could communicate now more freely with the other exiles to start a revolt. But there's no revolt. There's not a whiff of revolt here, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. That's our first point, that the exiled king was brought out of prison. We build on that now. And our second point, the exiled king received kindness while in exile, verses 32 and 33. Now, within that time of exile, that king could have been left in prison He could have been treated badly. He could have been starved out. He could have been beaten daily. Anything could have happened to him in an ancient Babylonian prison where there doesn't seem to be a commensurate balance of the crime and then the punishment for the crime. You you go against us, you spend 37 years in prison. It doesn't seem like it's in balance at all. So anything could have happened to him. Verse 32 says, The king of Babylon spoke kindly to him. How do you explain that? He just was a nice guy. This is God's grace in exile. That's the whole point. God has been saying since chapter 1, I will destroy and I will build. I will restore my people. I'm taking you to exile for 70 years and I'm bringing you back. We're starting to see the signals. We're getting excited. God is causing the new king of Babylon to speak kindly to our guy, King Jehoiachin. But there's more. Verse 32 also informs us that the king of Babylon gave him a seat. Wait, why should a prisoner of war get a seat in the palace? Grace, grace from God, straight up God's activity. Where is the seat? We're told that also in verse 32. A seat above or higher than the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. You see, Babylon was a military superpower at that time in the ancient world. They were the big guy. And they would express dominance over all the countries that they conquered by bringing their kings home alive back to Babylon and have them on permanent display. I conquered that nation, and that's the king. I conquered that nation, and that's the king. I conquered that nation, and that's the king. Everybody come see all the kings I have for little toys because that's how powerful I am, says the king of Babylon. When you get the scene, you see what's happening here. The kings were seated there to daily demonstrate the winner is Babylon, the loser is all these kings from all these other nations. But who gets the highest seat? Why did the king of so small a number of people from Judah, so small a country, have the honor, the extra honor, of a higher seat among all the detained kings from around the world? It's to show two things. Number one, the higher seat shows that the obedience and wisdom of the exiles from Jerusalem to live peaceful lives in those years in exile and not attempt revolt was a good way to go because God had instructed them in Jeremiah 29.7, seek the welfare of this city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
They were supposed to fully submit to the Babylonian captivity and be all in and serve as if this is their country and this is their king and they're supposed to bless it. And it's a good thing they did it that way. Instead of trying to circulate a revolt, that's one thing it shows us that the king had a higher seat. And the second thing it shows us is the gracious hand of the powerful God. This book ends on purpose with a picture painted to us of Jehoiachin on a higher seat above all the other kings. And it fits with the basic message we've seen through the whole book of Jeremiah. Look beyond the captivity to a time of restoration. See it. Because one fine day, you're going home. It's pictured in this scene. Why else would the king of Judah have a higher seat? Why else would Jeremiah end his book by telling us that? But that's not even it. That's not even all. There's more grace. Verse 33a, this time the grace from God came in the form of the king of Judah being enabled to change out of his prison clothes. No more jumpsuit, as it were. He wears regular clothes. We could even presume royal clothes. Verse 33b continues, there's even more grace. In addition, the king of Judah dined where? At the table of the king of Babylon. He dined at his table. That means a couple of things. Number one, he's in the presence of the king of Babylon, seeing him eye to eye, but not in a context of fear and execution, as we saw for King Zedekiah earlier in this chapter, but rather in a context of enjoying a meal together and sharing a meal in peace. The second thing it means is it has plenty of food. You don't sit at a king's table and run out. Uh, not suffering starvation in some ancient Babylonian prison. The third thing it means is it's royal food. They don't just serve basics. This is fit for a king. Number four, what it means is not just on sporadic occasions because we're literally told in verse 33b, quote, every day of his life. Every day of his life. Our God is so in consistent control of the universe that you can take his people away and hide them somewhere in Babylon. But every day, he oversees their care. That's the God that we're serving. It's a picture of God's grace. Keep this picture. Take it with you. It's the beautiful gift that we get at the end of our study of Jeremiah. The king of kings giving grace to the king of Judah through the hands of the king of Babylon in the sight of all the kings of the world. Who's the king of kings? And third... Our point is the exiled king had his daily needs met until the day of his death. Verse 34, there was more grace. God's grace also came in the form of an allowance. Supplies, food, medicine, washing his clothes, replacing worn-out clothes, perhaps even money to make purchases of the products available in the great city of Babylon. This isn't once in a while. This isn't when everybody was feeling good or they were half-wasted. Verse 34 tells us it was supplied according to his daily needs. One king, this need this king had was to provide for his sons. So we now get the comfort and amusing picture of knowing that our God has preserved the future line of the future kings of Judah from the line of David using government funds from the pagan empire of Babylon to do so. Don't you just get a little kick out of that? The allowance was granted to him by the king the king of Babylon. God could have provided for him through committed and clever exiles who secretly would sneak food to him through the waste channels or whatever. People are so clever. 
could send hidden packages to their king out of loyalty, but rather God provided through officially authorized means by the highest authority in Babylon. It's not just for a few initial months, but in verse 34, the very last words of the book of Jeremiah tell us God's gracious allowance was supplied, quote, until the day of his death, as long as he lived, end quote, end of book. Why does it end that way? After this new king of Babylon died later, God still saw to it that the following kings of Babylon continued the provision that God had set up, the allowance, the higher seat, the royal food, the change of clothes, the daily needs. God is sending a message to his exiles. God is sending a message to his exiles today in the world. We're supposed to compare this to the other king. What other king? Back in verse 11, when King Zedekiah died, remember? Lost his throne, lost his freedom, lost his sons who were killed while he watched. And again, not a merciful death. Then he lost his sight because he took out his eyes. Whatever interest he had in God was gone long ago too. Eventually he lost his life when he died in prison in Babylon, which should be a warning to every unbeliever, every age over the whole world. We're supposed to compare the death of Zedekiah in verse 11 with the provisions and eventual death of King Jehoiachin in verse 34, who has the exact same phrase, day of his death, used a second time in our chapter. We're supposed to compare. There's four ways that Jehoiachin's story and end is different. One, he didn't go through all the suffering that Zedekiah did, seeing his sons die before him and so on. Number two, Jehoiachin was freed from prison and honored in the palace. Never happened to Zedekiah. Number three, Jehoiachin was still regarded as king. You've got to wonder if anybody is regarding Zedekiah blinded as a king. And 37 years in, Jehoiachin still regarded as a king. And number four, the fourth difference, Jehoiachin survived with his sons. And a king from the line of David came through there to fulfill God's promise. To David, his promise to his people. The message of both kings is here in, the, in this last chapter. The king Zedekiah, verse 11. The king Jehoiachin, verse 34. To show us about our God. Our God is willing to come so hard against sin that he destroys. And he's willing to come with such love and power that he rebuilds in his grace. Jehoiachin's release from prison is a pledge from God for more grace. This is the down payment. This is the starter package. Wait till you see what I've got coming. God was showing them tangible hope for full restoration. How else do you explain the treatment of Jehoiachin? Good care of Jehoiachin was the signal that the kingdom of God would reemerge one day, yes, in a different form. No longer a military kingship. There'd be a king like David, but greater. No, no, not exactly like Moses, a prophet like Moses, but greater. A priest like Sariah, who was killed, but not for his own sins. There'd be a judge like Samuel, only greater. This person would be a later descendant from this exiled boy king named Jehoiachin, just 18 years old when he was taken into exile. Poor guy only ruled for three months, then taken into exile. There'd be a descendant from him, though. This one is what we really need. 
The Lord continued to give pledges of his faithfulness during the return from the exile that happened later, such as the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to restore the right worship of God. And when God gives the first chapter of the New Testament after 400 years of silence, we read Jehoiachin's name in another form. Jeconiah is how you'll read it. Matthew 1, verse 12, about halfway down between David and Jesus. Jehoiachin becomes a prequel to our Christmas story. Then God made good on those pledges when he sent his own son in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, and he becomes the new Jeconiah, the new and better king. Jesus went into a new and bigger exile, which was his death on the cross. He faced a new and bigger evil king, which is the devil himself. And in the exile of Jesus, God shows us the beginnings of all the future for all of us. Listen to express so beautifully how Jesus became a man in order to become our king and deliver us from our condition of sin, slavery, and death. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that is, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. You've got to wonder if the writer of Hebrews just got done reading Jeremiah. There's grace in the end because Jesus rose from the dead to bring us to delivery, deliver us from slavery to sin, exile to death, to full restoration in our future in the new Jerusalem. Paul would later report how this is fulfilled in Romans 1.3 that the greater son of David would be descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. There's grace in the end because it's the king appointed by God the Father. There's grace in the end because Jesus is the top king, the king higher than all other kings. The book of Jeremiah has shown us a lot about the voices speaking intensely, what it seemed to look like to have a Babylon-dominated world, to have an evil-dominated world militarily, and what it means for human rights and everything else. However, what we detect in our study of Jeremiah, a much more dominant theme, is that while the Babylonian Empire was uncommonly powerful, it was never ultimately powerful. Babylon was always under orders. It was always doing what God, the true king, desired for it to do, if it means attacking and destroying his temple and his city, if it means taking his people into exile, if it means feeding his king with royal food, whatever God had designed, Babylon does. Take that with you. We need that truth in our day. The future of Israel was not with those who were left behind in the homeland to farm some fields. The future of Israel was not left with those who were runaways to Egypt. The future of Israel was in the exiles in Babylon under the care of God, eventually being given more grace and being brought out from prison, out from Babylon, and brought home. More grace in the end of life of the king in exile gave hope that the other exiles could expect there would be more and more grace. Wait for it. Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God is the king of the kingdom, 
and his kingdom cannot be shaken. In fact, he rules over all. That's the kingdom that's ultimately powerful, and we are called to be thankful for it. What have we seen? That grace was shown to the exiled king at the end of the book of Jeremiah, that God would not and had not abandoned his people, and later in Jesus, the new and better Jeconiah, there's more grace to come. How the exiled king was brought out of prison, how the exiled king received kindness while in exile, how the exiled king had his daily needs met until the day of his death. So there's one concluding application to this final passage in our study of Jeremiah. Put your hope in God's king, for with him there's grace in the end. Put your hope in God's king, for with him there's grace in the end. I'll remind you that God had grace from the beginning, the beginning of Jeremiah. God gave grace by sending the prophet Jeremiah in the first place. God gave grace to keep the faithful prophet Jeremiah announcing an unpopular message for 40 years. God gave grace to offer the invitation to those sinning people of his to repent. The grace of warning after warning. The grace of chastisement. The grace of exile. Yes, I said it. The grace of exile. God's grace of the provisions within exile. More grace. The grace of hope arising out of that he told them before they left that it was going to be 70 years in duration. The grace of foretelling. The grace arising out of a consistently promised restoration. Our gracious God is all through the story who he said he was at the start. The God who destroys sin and the God who rebuilds after. Our God in his graciousness overthrows sin and graciously plants and replants and transplants and plants some more because he will get his man, he will get his woman, he will get his way, he will build his church, and it will be a holy church. And fast forward to the vision of the final day of judgment, which for us is not a day of judgment, but it's a day of grace. Fast forward to the last day. This all pictures the last day, doesn't it? Fast forward. The end of the world. Just think about it with me for a moment. The end of the world. Isn't that what we're called to think about in this passage? The last day is a day of God's abundant, unimaginable, gracious provision. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The source of all this is our Savior, the King. We read in Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Consider the reversal of this scene in Jeremiah 52. We're painted this scene in order that we can have a future scene that's the reverse. When you consider the scene of the heavenly Jerusalem, we're told by John in Revelation 21-24, you wonder if he just got done reading Jeremiah. Revelation 21-24, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. Instead of the kings of the earth giving their glory to an earthly king of Babylon, all the kings of the earth will together be giving their glory to the king of heaven, the king of kings in the new Jerusalem. That's the gathering that will last. Not the picture we saw in these verses. Our great God gives us grace to live our daily lives right here, right now, in this fallen world. Philippians 4.19 summarizes this truth. 
my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Apostle John agrees that the source of the supply of grace is not any of the prophets, it's not any of the apostles. The source is God alone. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, John 1.16, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. And verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. We could say it this way, for daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, there's sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. The Christian life is a matter of grace from beginning to end. That's all there is, is grace from God. And it's enough to last. It's enough for this. It's enough for our children and grandchildren, should he tarry. Put your hope in God's king. For with him, there's grace in the end. James 4, 6, God gives more grace. Let's pray. Father, because of Jesus, the new and better Jehoiachin, 